Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers, chapter 13. It's the fourth book of your Bible. And uh, go ahead and find your place there, chapter 13. Not in a series. We finished up the uh, Burning Question series last Sunday. So this is just a message, a standalone message that I thought would be uh, appropriate, beneficial for us in our, in our walks with Christ today. So Numbers, chapter 13, hold your spot, and we're going to get there pretty soon. So when I graduated college uh, a couple of years or so ago, uh, when I finished, I, I graduated in the quarter, uh, in, in spring quarter, so it was March when I graduated, and uh, Two months later or so, I went off to uh, a summer project with a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Some of you may be familiar with that, a real reputable, reputable ministry that has really kind of an outreach all over the world, but the campus ministry for which is known as all over the country. And so I graduated, went off uh, two months later to my summer project assignment. I had applied and all that kind of stuff, and I was uh, assigned to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And so I spent that summer, uh, right after graduation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, with about 60 other college students or so from all over the country, from UCLA all the way to the East Coast and seemingly everywhere in between, and then about 30 staff that were there for half the summer, and then they left, and it was just ours, right? And so part of that ministry, that summer project in Myrtle Beach was spent on Bible study and kind of sharpening your tools and those kinds of things, learning to do outreach, doing outreaches, uh, outreach events on the beach. We lived a block from the beach, which was tough, but somebody had to do it. And uh, that summer. And so we would do a lot of outreach, but we would also work while we were there, partly because, you know, some students had to work through the summer just to help pay for school or for what, you know, for whatever. And then also it was an opportunity to build relationships with the people that you work with so that you could try to influence them ultimately. Uh, through your words, through your witness for Christ. And so there I was in Myrtle Beach, and 60 students kind of worked all over that area. And for me, I mean, you would go and you would apply, and a lot of times, because Campus Crusade had been there for so many years, they already had relationships with a lot of the businesses. And so for that summer, I had the glorious job of working at a Shoney's restaurant about 15, uh, maybe 20 miles or so from where we were living right there in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I had the polyester plaid. I had it going on. I was waiting tables, and I was horrible at what I did, absolutely terrible. I would break stuff. I would get so so stressed out. We had a girl on our project. She um, she uh, she was the hostess, and then there were two others I think that waited tables as well. And uh, and I would come to her, and I, I, would, I would I would tell her, please don't seat anybody else in my section. And uh, when you're waiting tables, I mean you want customers, right? You want people in your section because that's going to be your tips. I would come to her, please don't seat anybody else in my section. This is a Shoney's, right? How stressful can it be? Most of them ate the breakfast buffet, and I was telling her, please don't seat anybody else in my section. I would have like two tables, maybe three, and I would be begging her, don't put anybody else in my section. I was so bad at what I did. Well, there was this one instance where uh, I was working one day, and I still remember, they would take you off the, off the floor waiting tables about a half an hour before your shift ended, and they'd take you back, they'd call it behind the line, and you would do, you'd wrap silverware, you'd do a little side work to get ready for the crew coming in behind you. And so here I was, I was, I was taken off the floor this particular day, had a half hour of rolling silverware, and then doing my side tasks for the day. And my side task for that particular day was the important task of making sure that all the little containers had butter in them. And that butter was crucial because you don't want to order a baked potato and not have butter. I could ruin someone's meal, right? Or if it was pancakes, you had to have butter. So that was my little side task. So I came off the floor, and I went looking for this big pan of butter back in the kitchen at that Shoney's near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, because out of that pan of butter, I was going to take it out of that pan, put it in a smaller metal 
kind of a square tub, and out of that, I would have my little mini ice cream scooper, scoop it out, and put that butter in the little plastic, or little paper cups to go out later on that night. And so I had an issue. I went back there, and uh, I had the butter, but I didn't have a spoon to dip it out with. And so I went to a lady, and I don't remember her name, but she worked there, and she was the salad prep person. That was her responsibility, and everybody knew it. She was a salad prep person. If I remember correctly, she probably spent more time on salad prep than she did on actual showering and cleanliness, but that was her job, was the shower prep, I mean the shower prep, that would be a little awkward, was the salad prep person. And so I went to her and I said, hey, I got to get this butter in these little things, but the whole world depends on this. And so I've got the butter here, but I don't have a spoon. Do you know where a spoon is? She said, you don't need a spoon. And she takes her salad prepping hand and goes, down in that tub of butter, pulls her out a nice little scoopful, comes over to that little metal square bin I had and puts some in there. (laughs) And with all the sincerity of my heart, I said, thank you. (laughs) I lived a block from the beach for the whole summer. I mean, I had time to go to the beach if I hurried back to where I was living. And so I just went ahead and did my stuff and went on for the day. You know, I've learned a valuable lesson that day. Don't eat at Shoney's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think the closest Shoney's we have is like way out near Richmond Hill, I think, if it's still there. But, uh, but no, you, 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 never, you never know what goes on behind the doors of a restaurant, right? But even beyond that, we live by faith a whole lot more than maybe we realize. You think about that. That's your moment for the morning, right? Your little restaurant devotional moment. Now, we live by faith more than we realize. Hey, when you go out to eat, you don't know what's going on behind those doors in the kitchen, right? Now, 99% of the time, it comes out just fine. But at the end of the day, we have to trust that whoever's back there cooking, whoever's taking care of that food for the last few days, actually, you know, cooled it properly and cleaned it properly and did all that stuff properly and everything sanitized. It takes a lot of faith to do that. When you send your kids off to school in the morning, if you send them off on a bus, right, you send them off in the care of a total stranger, that takes faith. Even if they don't ride the bus, you send them off to school and they're being taught by people that you really probably don't know very well, if at all, that takes faith to do that. When you leave this place, you're going to go drive down the road and you may go 20, 30, depending on your road, you may get on the highway and do 40 or 50, right, 60, 70, 80, whatever it may be. And when you ride down the road, you're having faith that down that center line, as you stay to the right of that yellow, there is another person coming the other way who also is staying to the right side of their yellow line. When you go through an intersection, you are demonstrating faith that as you go through, your green light is also a red light to those going the opposite direction across in front of you, and you're demonstrating faith faith, not just in them stopping, but that that actual light is going to work. You check your online accounts, and you check your checking, and your savings, and your retirement, and you see these dollar figures flashing there right on the screen in front of you, and you have faith that somewhere there's actual cash, that if you went to that place and you said, hey, give me my money, they're actually going to say, I'll be right back, and they go back behind a closed door and come back, and boom, here's your money, right? You have faith that it's not just numbers on a screen, but that there's actual money that's there. Listen, we live by faith every single day. Every day we live by faith. And what I want us to see this morning 
as we journey through the early part of the Old Testament here and ultimately make our way to this passage in Numbers, I want to see a few principles as we go. And I hope you'll jot these down. And the first one is this, that the object of our faith is always more important than the amount of our faith. The object of our faith is always more important than the amount of our faith. Now, here's what I did not say. I did not say it's okay to have little faith. Right? That's not our goal. You know, I, just, I have a little faith, and so that's all that God really wants of me. No, I don't say that. Jesus, at times, had comment about people with little faith, but he also had a comment that even the faith of a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed, can, can, can work miracles, right? can move mountains. And so the, it, it's, it's not something that we want to be comfortable, just having a weak, small, shallow faith. However, we need to remember that the object of our faith is always more important than the amount of our faith. You know, when you look at this world, we trust in a lot of different things. People that you go to work with, people that you go to school with, people that you live near, they have faith in all kinds of different stuff, right? For a lot of people, their faith is in themselves. And if you were to ask them, hey, what kind of life do you hope for? They'd say, man, I hope for the best life. I hope for the absolute most wonderful life that a person could ever live. Well, what are you trusting to have that? Well, I'm trusting in myself. I surround myself with good people. I work really hard. I take care of my money. I, I treat people the right way. I do, do all these good things. I trust in myself. Here's the problem. You may trust in yourself, and I'm all for being confident and having assurance in life. However, here's my issue with me. I can't live your life. I, I can only live mine, and that's always not that easy. But when I look at myself, is that I've let myself down all the time. I let other people down all the time, right, because I'm not perfect and I have a long way to go. That's not excuse. That's just reality. And if my plan in life is to have faith in me, it's going to be a long, hard, disillusioned, painful road. And yours is too. We may have faith in just everything working out, right? Some may call it karma, other that it's just, you know, just this mentality. It's all going to pan out in the end, right? It's all just going to shake out. Everything's just going to work out the way it's supposed to. That's, that's just not the way it works. I mean, there's no such thing as karma. I mean, the principle, yeah, you reap what you sow, but I mean, karma doesn't even apply. I mean, it's just nowhere in the system that we read about how God operates. It's, it's not even something that we need to be trusting in or even thinking about, right? That God has a plan. God has a purpose. And if we think it's just all somehow going to fall out and come together in the end, no, it's bigger than that. God wants us to have him as the object of our faith, not just this take a step back, take our hands off the wheel, and that's all going to work out. No, God wants to be the object of our faith. And when we look at this issue of faith, the object of our faith is always, always, always more important than the amount of our faith. Principle number two is that when we think about the Bible, how does all this intersect the Bible? Well, when you think about Scripture, the Bible is written ultimately to bring about a response of faith in us towards God. I remember when I was in seminary after college and after Shoney's, um, eventually worked on staff of the church for about six years, then went on to seminary. And I remember when I was there, I was in uh, a sermon delivery class. I know that sounds incredibly exciting, uh, but I was in a sermon delivery class. And I remember, I remember the guy who taught the class. I also had him for sermon prep, and he wrote the book. Don't ever take a class from a guy who wrote the book. It's just really hard. So I had him in sermon delivery, and he made a comment one time, and it, I don't think I really grasped it at first. I just sort of learned it for the test. I didn't really grasp it. Now I think I get it a little bit better. He said, you know, the Bible, exactly what this principle is, the Bible is written for a response of faith. 
know, there may be times that you hear me speak, and whenever I, whenever I preach, I, I try to make application. When, all through the years in my Christian walk, I've always enjoyed listening to guys who preach, who have a lot of good stories that sort of capture my attention and pull me in and help me to understand and simplify things. And I've always enjoyed those, those folks who speak, who are able to put handles to what they're teaching so that when I get up and leave, I know how to apply what I've heard. And I always try to do that. I don't always do it real well, but hopefully when you leave, there's some type of an application. But here's what I've seen is that that doesn't always happen because there are times we can read a passage of scripture, whether you hear it read in a sermon or whether you sit down to study it yourself and you maybe do your 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minute quiet time during the day and you read your devotion and you get up from it, you may come up and think, you know what, I don't know how to apply that passage to my life. In fact, there are some Old Testament passages, if you tried to replicate what you just read, it just may get you arrested, right? You might get in trouble if you try to apply some of the things, you know, uh, verbatim for what you read. It's sometimes hard to come away from Scripture with an exact application of what we're supposed to do. But when that happens, here's what I think God's looking for. I think what he's, what he's almost saying to us is, though you may not know of a perfect application of what you just heard or what you just read, listen, how can you trust me more? Because wrapped up in Scripture, every time we read, there is a challenge to our faith, and we have to make the decision, can I trust God more? Can I trust Him better based on what I've read? And I'm convinced that the whole entire Bible is written ultimately for us to trust Him, take Him at His word, and follow Him wherever He leads. And so when we look at this issue of faith specifically, it's the object of our faith that's crucial, that the object of our, of our faith has to be God himself, that the Bible itself is written to bring about in us a response of faith. So what does the story of the Bible teach us then about the object of our faith and what our response should be? So let's just take a moment and walk through the story of the Bible for just a few minutes. It's a big book. The whole thing is true. And in the very beginning, what we find is that God created you to know him. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the concept of the Trinity and how God is one God who exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is completely independent of his creation. And when he created mankind, God created us to have relationship with him. He was perfectly fine without us. God didn't create one day and say, you know what? I need some help around here. This is a big world. I can't handle it myself. It's kind of outgrown who I am. I need to create somebody. He didn't do it that way. He created us to know him. He created us, I believe, to share his glory, right? And so he made us and he created us for the purpose of relationship. And in that creation, he gave boundaries for us to live by. He put Adam and Eve in the midst of a garden and he had rules. I mean, it's not a bad word. He had rules. He said, hey, d this tree that's right here, don't dare eat of it. Or when you do, you're going to die. And it was a reminder that God's in control and that we're not. Well, you know the story that Adam and Eve sinned, and we can't get mad at them because we would have done the same thing had we been there. I mean, we would have grabbed that fruit off and, you know, eaten it and probably taken another bite, and we would have done the same thing they did. And yet when that sin happened, a devastation occurred that man, who was created by God in perfection, given the freedom to choose, chose wrongly and tried to be our own God, and ultimately separation occurred. 
I'd be willing to say maybe even right here today, there are some here who know God. You have a relationship with Jesus. You've given your life to Christ. You've made a genuine decision. You remember you were there, right, to pray and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me and take over. And you prayed whatever words you used. And yet somewhere along the way, you began to to, to distance God and push him away and, and just move ever so slightly away from him. And one choice, one step at a time, you moved away. And what you found was that 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 sin, right, maybe you embraced a sin in place of him, created separation. And though you are still in relationship with him, he doesn't feel close like you used to. And you don't have a desire to get close to him like you used to. In fact, it may be a small miracle that you're even here today, and I commend you. But there may be separation between you and God, and you just don't have that, that feel going. You're not really walking with him, and, and you're not really enjoying him the way you used to. Sin always brings separation. And in the true story of the Bible, that's exactly what happened. Over those next few chapters, sin would spiral out of control. You get to Genesis chapter 11, and you see that there's a group of people that sort of capture the heart of all of humanity at that point, and they make a decision. They say to themselves, self, let's build a tower. And let's build this tower that's going to make it all the way to heaven. And we're going to build for ourselves not just a tower, but a name. Everybody's going to know who we are. And the Bible says in Genesis 11 that God came down and he inspected the tower. And he issued, didn't use this word, kind of, but he issued a stop order, right? And the work project ceased. Bricks and mortar were scattered all over, there, all over everywhere. And at the same time, all those people were scattered as well. Genesis 11 The tower was the Tower of Babel. And by the time it was all said and done, what God had originally uh, um, decreed to go forth and multiply, he then forced, he scattered those people, and the nations began to develop. One man would come to the forefront. His name would be Abraham. Abraham would receive a call from God that was unique in this particular point in Scripture. And what would happen to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 would be a plot twist to the whole entire story. Look at what God would say to Abraham. You can see it on the overhead here, Genesis chapter 12. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you a land. This would be known as the promised land. He said, and I will bless you. Here's a cool part. And I will make your name great. It's almost like God is saying what the people tried to do previously, building the tower to me to make their own name great. I shut that one down. I will make your name great, Abraham. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I'll curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And at the age of 75, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I've got a new land for you and a new people and I've got a new na- you're going to uh, be made into a new nation, but you got to trust me and you got to follow where I lead you. I'm not going to unfold the whole map. You've got to take steps of faith. Later on towards the close of the Bible in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews looks back to that time, hundreds of years. Look at the commentary that this writer gives, Hebrews 11 verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham... 
when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Some of you moved to this area, you moved to the islands, you bought your house on the internet, you bought it sight unseen. You talked to a realtor, and uh, you found it online, and you just made the purchase all online, and then you moved here with it being yours. You think that was hard. (laughs) Abraham left everything to move to a land that wasn't his own. It says in verse 9, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He trusted God. The object of his faith was not knowing what was next. The object of his faith was God himself. Two verses later, verse 12, look at what it says in Hebrews 11. Therefore there was born even of one man, even from Abraham, and him as good as dead at that. How would you like God to say that about you? (laughs) As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, God did exactly what he told him he would. And as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That's in caps because it's an Old Testament quote. God's not screaming at us. All right but he could. I mean, God could, could shout, I did exactly what I said I would. But Abraham's faith was key. The story continues, 400 years would pass. Abraham and his 70 descendants would transition to the land of Egypt over 40 years New pharaohs would come on the scene, and though Israel had been honored guests over 400 years, they became slaves. They were being used as not even hired labor. They were being forced to produce for the good of the land of Egypt. God would raise up a leader by the name of Moses, born in the land of Egypt, but Hebrew, Jewish by birth. And he would raise up Moses to go to Pharaoh and to plead for God's people to be set free. Many of you know the story. He would go nine times and Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And then finally that tenth time there would be a specific plague that God would, would, uh, would threaten them with if they did not heed. And the plague was that the firstborn would be taken. Israel would be commanded to put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of their homes and they would be spared And that's exactly what they did. They trusted God's plan. They trusted God's way. And they trusted God. And they did what they were told. And surely they were spared. But in the land of Egypt, there was mourning as family after family after family chose not to heed God and ultimately, ultimately suffered. Pharaoh would say, I've had enough. Hit the road. Take what you need. Here's some extra. And off they go towards the promised land. They get to the edge of the Red Sea and they see this mighty gulf of water. They look behind them and the approaching Egyptian army, because Pharaoh came to his senses, said, what was I thinking? And he sent all of his chariots and all of his horses and all of his men. And and they went off after the people of Israel. And there at the Red Sea, God would perform kind of like an Old Testament Easter where he would show up and he would part the waters of that Red Sea and on dry ground, the biggest miracle perhaps they had ever seen at that point in their history, on dry ground, two million strong march right across that dry Red Sea. And when the Egyptians pursue, God causes that water to collapse and the enemy is done. Israel would make their way to Mount Sinai 
They would get the law from God there. They would learn what it meant to walk in holiness. They would be given more promises from God. They would be commanded to build a tabernacle, a visual that God would be with them. Through the wilderness, God would provide manna and food and, 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 and drink, and, and he would guide them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had, man, they had everything there. And they get to the very edge of the, of the promised land after being at Sinai for almost a year. The time has come. 400 years plus God had promised this land, and there they are. The plains of Moab right across from the promised land. And so Moses sends out 12 spies to spy the land. And it's there that we pick up here in Numbers chapter 13. And it reminds us of this third principle that pulls it all together. And the third principle is this, that faith is always proven through our obedience. Moses sends in the 12 spies. Look at what happens. We pick up the story here in Numbers 13, verse 27. And here Israel sits. The 12 spies go in. It says, thus they told Moses, they come back with a report, that we went into the land where you sent us. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. I mean, they came back. That doesn't mean much to us today, right? You got milk in your fridge and you got honey in your cabinet. I mean, imagine this. It's like they come back and said, this land is flowing with, with steak and sweet tea. I mean, this, this, it doesn't get any better than this. This is some good, good stuff, you know. And, and they bring back some of the fruit. But the next verse says, nevertheless, nevertheless, but, right, the people who live in the land are strong, they said, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak living there. These are like huge people. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. Those were enemies. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. Those were enemies. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Those were enemies. All they see are the obstacles, and when we decide that we are being called to take a step of faith, it will not usually be easy. God, almost by design, makes it somewhat difficult because we have to decide, are we going to trust Him or are we not? If we can see it to the end, it's not faith. The object of our faith can never be circumstances falling in place. It can never be perfect provision. The object of our faith is a God who always leads us in accordance with his will and always provides for those who follow him. And here they are at the very edge having to make a decision. Are we going to trust? And the people see the obstacle and say, we can't do it. Verse 30, next verse, look at what it says. And then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. I mean, Caleb, he understood. I mean, he's like, he's got it all together. You know, he's old school, 1980s, wearing Air Jordans. Let's just do it. You know, that's kind of, that's his mentality. He's got the Home Depot bucket. What what is it says, Home Depot? Let's do this, right? He's got it all. He's, he's like, what are you talking about? This land, these giants. What do, you, what, do you, what do you care about that? I mean, we got the God who made promises to Abraham 400 plus years ago for crying out loud. Do you not remember where he's brought us in the last year? The Red Sea, the wall of water, the man in the wilderness, the cloud of fire, the pillar. I mean, you don't remember this stuff? And Caleb and Joshua are the only ones whose object of faith is God. But nobody else could see it. Verse 31 through the beginning of chapter 14. 
the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people for they are too strong for us. They gave out the sons of Israel a bad report to the, of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we've gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. These were giant, literally like giants. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And all the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried. And the people wept that night. And the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation, two million plus we can assume, said to them, would that we had died in a land of Egypt, would that we had died in this wilderness. It was better when we were slaves, it was better when we were in the desert than having to walk by faith. And aside from those who were young in that crowd, and aside from Joshua, and aside from Caleb, every single one of those Israelites died on the floor of that desert over the next 39 years. costs us when we don't walk by faith. It costs us. We're no Moses. We're no Abraham. We're not the people of Israel. But we are people called by God living in a fallen world. And the nature of our walk is a walk of faith. And when we don't walk by faith, it costs us. Not because God zaps us, but by nature, the life of the believer is a life of faith. So why is this important? Three things really fast, and I'm done. Three things really quick. Why is it important that we walk by faith? Number one, because when we don't trust God, we don't obey God. We don't follow people we don't trust, right? I mean, you, you don't have some work to do around the house and, you know, ask a buddy of yours, hey, do you know anybody who's really good? You, you know a good plumber? Do you know a good handyman? And, and, and they say, well, whatever you do, don't call this guy because you can't trust him for nothing, I mean, what's your response? Oh, well, give me his number. That's exactly the kind of guy I'm looking for, right? You don't do that. You don't follow people you don't trust. And when we don't trust God and we don't have our faith in him and he's not the preeminent object of our faith, we are not going to obey him, period. So if there's an area of disobedience in your life, perhaps what the question needs to be is, why am I not trusting God Number two, whenever we don't trust God, we will replace God with something else. You know, the big debate on our money, it says in God we trust, and a lot of, a lot of people from time to time, we just need to take that off our money because we're not a nation who trusts God. We're not a godly nation. We're not a God-honoring nation anymore. We just need to take that off our money and not be hypocrites, that kind of stuff. You know what? In, in a sense, we are not a godless nation. I mean, I, th this nation today is not a godless nation. The problem is not that we are godless. The problem is, is that we have too many false gods and do not line up underneath the authority of the one true living God. That's the problem. Because when we abandon God and when we do not trust him, promise, I promise you will replace him with something less. That's what Israel did. You read the story, Exodus 32 Let's throw some gold in the fire and make out a calf, and let's just call that God for us. We've been doing it ever since. Reason three why faith is so important, because when we don't trust God, we miss God. I mean, think about Abraham. If he didn't trust God, moved to a land where God told him very little, well, I mean, 
You ever sang the song with your kids? Father Abraham had many sons, right? I mean, he would have never had that song written about him. <laughs> Didn't trust God. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Oh, let's just be real. What would he have missed if he didn't take God at his word? What would Moses have missed if he didn't trust God when it was hard? What would the disciples have missed if they didn't trust him? And we have to ask the question, what then do we also miss when we know what God wants of us and we do not trust him enough to follow? God may be asking some hard things of you in your marriage, in your work, with your possessions, in your character, in your decisions. God may be asking some really hard things from you right now, Christian. And in your heart, you know what the right step is. You just got to decide, do I trust God enough to take that step? Because it might cost me, but am I willing to trust him? And only you can choose. And don't forget that if you've never given your life to Jesus, that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace we have been saved, finish it with me, through faith. You'll never get to God without faith to begin with. But he's done everything that's needed, hasn't he? He came, he died, he rose. We got a book that tells us all about it, never been proven wrong. And maybe for you, the first decision is, what am I going to do with this one Jesus who's God and is calling me to himself today? Am I willing to lay down my sin and to invite him to come and to forgive and take over? And if you do that right where you sit today, he'll hear you, he'll save you, he'll keep you, he'll come back for you, and he will change you. I promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that our faith is not a blind faith. Lord, you don't ever call us to just jump with no parachute. Lord, it's just that you're our parachute. Lord, when you call us to step out in faith, you give us what we need to know the next step. Usually it's your word. You'll never lead us to do something in contradiction to the Bible. Lord, oftentimes your leading is validated just as we pray, your Holy Spirit just sort of puts a fingerprint there that says, this is what I'm up to. This is where I'm leading. Sometimes it's wise counsel around us that helps to validate that we're not missing it. But God, more often than not, we, we know what you want from us. It's just a lot of times, truth be told, we don't trust you enough to follow you. Or we think our way's better. But God, we want to be people of faith. We don't want to be the generation known for missing the promised land. We want to be the one known for taking a stand to say this is where God's leading. So let's just take a stand and move forward. Lord, whatever area of life. So God, help us to be people of faith. Help us to take this seriously. Because Lord, when real life comes, it comes fast and it comes hard. God, we can't make it without you being the object of our faith alone. And we can't make it without a relationship with Jesus who gets us to you. So, Lord, whatever the application is today, help us to apply it. And for those who don't know Jesus, Lord, perhaps even today, right where they sit, they can make that one decision that changes everything to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me and my sin and come and take over. Make me the person you want me to be. Lord, we thank you that you hear that and that you acknowledge that because you love us. Bless this time of decision in Jesus' name.